listening to Sunday Sermons from Warren Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org. What does God say? You know, none of us really like the issue of having authority over us, do we? We see it happen in our children. Jan and I were talking this week and remembered a little thing about a couple of our granddaughters, Whitney's two oldest, Harper and then Lucy. They were fighting. That's unusual, right? You know, sibling rivalry. Uh, The two oldest daughters, they're fighting. Lucy, I don't know, she was probably four or five, something like that. She looks at Harper, her sister, and says, you're not the boss of me. (laughs) I think that that's the way a lot of people have a perspective about God's authority over our lives. You're not the boss of me. It's my life. I'll live it any way that I want to. The Bible is okay, but it is not my authority. I am my carpe. I am the captain of my soul. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Remember that? Movie, The Dead Poet Society. Well, I want you to know something today, that the Bible says this, that he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The Bible tells us, How shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for all good work. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, for his his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its own season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success." Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, tell us that we are to have the Word of God in our hearts. We are to live by the Word of God. We are to teach the Word of God in our homes. We're to talk about it when we rise up, when we lie down, when we sit by the way, when we walk by the way. We're to put it as frontlets on our foreheads and as on our wrist and on, so that we know that what God has for us and what he wants us to do. The word of God. So why is it? 
You know, in Psalm 119, it has 176 verses in it. 176 verses. Every verse, every verse in Psalm 119 says something about the Word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord, say it with me, will stand forever. You know, when we started thinking about this series, I wrestled with how to approach talking about the authority of God's Word. It would take weeks, really, to go through all of the, um, the arguments, that philosophical arguments about God's Word. It would take weeks to look at all the different manuscripts that have been that have been found over 5,000. There's more manuscripts on the Word of God than there is about the Gaelic Wars. But yet we don't have any doubt about the Gaelic Wars or the Peloponnesian Wars. We accept those as historical facts. But there's hundreds of times more, more manuscripts about the Word of God, but yet people today will doubt the Word of God. I thought that we might do a philosophical arguments about the Word of God and why we would do it, but I came down and boiled it down to this. Why not just let the Word of God speak for itself? It doesn't need my help. The Word of God can speak for itself. Let me read you something, a quote that I found from A.F. Miller. Listen to this. The Bible reveals the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories true, its decisions immutable. It controls light to direct you, food to support you, comfort to cheer you. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory. Hell is disclosed. Christ is its grand object. Our good, its design. The glory of God, its end. It is given you in life, will be opened at judgment and remembered forever. It rebukes the slightest sin, woos the greatest sinner, wins the hardest heart. It offers protection in fancy, happiness in childhood, inspiration in youth. Strength for maturity, assurance of old age, comfort in death and salvation and riches and glory, reward for all eternity. That's a pretty good statement, isn't it? We have had struggles throughout all of Christendom. Back in the 70s, the Southern Baptist Convention was being divided over this issue of the authority of the Word of God. Thank God for men like Adrian Rogers, uh, Mr. Uh, Pastor Chriswell, W.A. Chriswell out of Dallas. Thank God for Charles Stanley, Ed Young, many others who in the, in the late 70s said, we have got to turn our seminaries and our education facilities, we have got to turn these folks back to the Word of God and to turn our convention because there was liberalism that was creeping in and I want to tell you it was really really a crucial time thank God for men like him and others who stood up and in his inaugural address as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention in his first year 
he made a statement because there were those who were trying to get Adrian Rogers to compromise on the Word of God. And this is what he said. It is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. Thank God for men like that. So where do you stand? Where do you stand on the Word of God? Where do you stand? What is your relationship to the Word of God? Do you see it as your authority for every decision you will ever make? You say, well, it, you know, uh, science has, has proven that the Word of God's not true about things. I dare you to show me one thing science has proven that the Bible is not correct in. I challenge you. Show it to me. There's not one iota of evidence. In fact, the Bible is not a science book, but when it speaks scientifically, it speaks absolutely correctly, and it speaks absolutely perfectly, and it is absolute truth when it speaks. You say, well, all those early people, they believed the, the, the earth was flat, and science has proven that the earth is round. No, no, no. Look in the book of Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 40, where the Bible says that the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers, and the Lord sits upon the circle of the earth. You see, the Bible already knew that the world was round. It was just a bunch of idiots who had never read it. What is your relationship to the Word of God? Where do you go for counsel? When you want to know if something's right or something's wrong. Should I be involved in this? Is this, is this to be a part of my life? How am, I supposed to, how am I supposed to live my life? Do you go to the Word of God or do you go to culture? Do you go to Hollywood? Do you go to the government? Do you go to your friends and your family? You know, those are all good things. But every one of those will lead you astray if you're not careful. Where do you go? Where, what is your relationship to the Word of God? Some people despise it. Some deny it. Some distort it. Some want to dissect it. And some just absolutely disregard it. In fact, I've had people literally sit in my office and say things like this. Well, I know that the Bible says this, but... I know then we're in deep, deep trouble. Listen, the Bible says it, 
That settles it. You know, there's a saying that went around. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. No, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. The Bible says it, that settles it. The Word of God. The authority of the Word of God over our lives. You know, God is not only our greatest hope, but he is also our greatest enemy. Because if you deny the word of God, and you walk away from the word of God, and you reject his revelation to us through his written word and through his living word, Jesus Christ, then you will stand in the judgment of God. So let's look. I want us to just look at a passage of scriptures found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. Listen to what this says. Having been born again. Now that is the spiritual birth that Jesus talked about to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again. Nicodemus said, what? Do I go into my mother's womb and, and, and be born again that way? Jesus said, no. That which is of the flesh is flesh, but that which is of the spirit is spirit. He's, he's contrasting here. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're thinking about a physical birth. I'm talking to you about a spiritual birth that every person must have. He didn't say it would be good if you were born again or it would be a great idea if you were born again. He said you must be born again. Now, how are we born again? Listen to this verse. Having been born again, first of all, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. How? Through what? Read it with me. The word of God which lives and abides forever. Why? Because everything that's natural, everything that is biological, it says all flesh is grass. And all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away. But only the word of God will endure forever. And Peter goes on to say, now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So how are we born again? By the proclamation of the word of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, taking the word of God that is proclaimed and read, and taking that word and and, and reaching into our dead spirit and quickening our dead spirit to life with the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is this word that we're looking at? Why is it our authority? Well, first of all, it is the unimpeachable word of God. Now, we, over the past couple of years, we heard a whole lot about this word impeach, didn't we? What a, what a forest. What does it mean to be? What does impeach mean? It means that there is something that has been done incorrectly. 
It means that there is, uh, uh, there is something that needs to be taken care of and, and, and corrected. It means that there has been law broken, impeach. The word of God is unimpeachable. There is nothing that the word of God says that can ever, ever, ever be impeached. The word of God is clear. It says what it means and means what it says. It's the word of God that has changed nations, that has changed people. It has changed every one of you if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's no contest, no controversy, no denying it. The Bible is the word of God. It is unimpeachable. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 30, 23 says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. There is nothing corruptible about the word of God. Impeachment means something has been corrupted. Or that's the charge anyway. I dare anyone, and I challenge anyone who may be listening, any, any evolutionary professor out there, any intellect that you think that denies God, an atheist or an agnostic, I dare to challenge you to a debate and you show me anything where the Word of God is corrupt. It is not corrupt. It is incorruptible. How was the Bible written? Well, you and we're there. Let's go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 10. Look at chapter 1 and verse 10. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Notice what it says. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified before the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now what is this saying? Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. They prophesied of the grace that should come, searching what or by what manner of time the Spirit of Christ uh, which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. Now this verse says that the Old Testament prophets, what did they do? They prophesied because of what? The Spirit of Christ that was in them. The Holy Spirit of God was prophesying through them. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God was directing them and what they would say using their own personality, their own vocabularies. But the Word of God, I mean the Holy Spirit of God superintending over their thoughts, their actions, so that what they prophesied and the Word of God as we have today and the major prophets and the minor prophets, we know we can look at that and it is absolutely unimpeachable. There are many, many descriptions for the Bible. A lot of people use many different descriptions. My, my favorite, and I think the favorite of everyone that, that really understands is just simply this. The Bible is the Word of God. Now, if you think about that, God himself calls the Bible the Word of God. Let me just give you a few verses that, that uh, say that for us. 
Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. And they spake the word of God with boldness. Who's he talking about? The apostles. Romans 10 and verse 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. And take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That is the only offensive weapon in the armor of God. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when, we, when you receive the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. Over 500 times in the first five books of the Bible, God says, this is my word. Over a thousand times in the major and minor prophets, God says, this is my word. Over 4,000 times in the entire Old Testament, the Bible is alluded to as the word of God. 44 times in the New Testament, it is called the word of God. You say, well now, Wait a minute, Pastor Ken. Why are you saying that over and over again? Because it is over and over and over and over again. The Bible is the Word of God. And if it is His Word, and we believe that He is our Creator, our Sustainer, our Comforter, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and everything in between, then we need to listen to His Word. You say, well, I, I accept the fact that the Bible is the Word of God. Well, let me just pause here for a minute and say this. If you really believe that the Bible is the Word of God, if you really believe that when the Bible speaks, God speaks, it's going to have some powerful implications in your life. Let me give you just a couple. For example, if it's the Word of God, that means it's absolutely perfect. You see, God cannot have imperfection. He is unimpeachable. It's absolutely perfect. I mean, can God, who is nothing but truth, can God speak error? The Bible says, let every man be a liar, but God is truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And from the verb there, is given by inspiration of God, is several words there in our English, but in the Greek it is one word, theonoustos. Theo is the word, or theos is the Greek word for God, and noustos is, is the, the root word of that is pneuma, where we get to our word pneumatic, and when we think of something that is pneumatic, it's something that's driven by air. And so the word theonoustos means the very breath of God. God breathed. You could read that verse and just simply say this, all scripture is God breathed. Now we could talk about the different views of inspiration of scripture, and there are a lot of them out there. Well, I don't have time to go over all of them. Let me just give you a couple. Some believe or teach 
the dictation theory. That is, that God dictated to every uh, human author exactly what he wanted to say. In other words, God dictated, the human author wrote exactly what God dictated. I reject that. No, now there are parts of Scripture that are, were dictated. What is one? Ten Commandments came straight from God, the finger of God. What I believe is that, oh, is that God superintended over, the Holy Spirit of God superintended over the 40 different human authors that God used. He used their personality. He used their educational ability. He used their vocabulary. And he superintended over them as they wrote, keeping the word of God from error, guiding and directing. There are some who say that there's partial inspiration. Well, my uh, question to that is, what part is inspired and what part is not? Some believe in what's called natural inspiration, kind of like when you read the Shakespeare and you feel inspired that that, uh, the, you know, the, the Word of God is, is not accurate in, in everything, but that when you read it, you feel inspired, you feel encouraged. I reject that. So what do you believe, Brother Ken? Here's what I believe. Let me give you some words. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. What does it mean? What is inerrancy? That it is absolute truth with no, no, no mixture of error. Absolute truth. It is inerrant. We take it all the way back to the original autographs, and those were the ones that, like when Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, it's, the, it's that original letter that he wrote, that it was absolutely inerrant, and that through the process of God superintending over the 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 fact of, of the Word of God being brought to us day in our English Bibles, I believe God superintended over that just as he did the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the church at Colossae. So we have an absolute, inerrant copy of the Word of God today. I also believe in what's called verbal inspiration. Now what does that mean? It means that I believe that every word in the Bible is directly inspired from God. Every word. I also believe in what's called the plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y, view of inspiration. What does that word mean? It means that, that Joshua 3.16 is just as inerrant as, and inspired as John 3.16. Plenary gives us with. Verbal inspiration gives us depth, every word. Inerrancy tells us that we have the very word of God today in our hands. Some, what, does, what else does the Bible teach us um, about this, this issue? How is, how is the, the word of God and and Jesus Christ, who is called the Word of God as well. How are they brought together? We have the written Word of God that's inerrant. It's verbally inspired. It's plenarily inspired. And then Jesus Christ, who came incarnate, who revealed to us who God really is and was through what he 
through his person and his work. He's called the Word of God. You see, there are two words that are used in the New Testament uh, to describe the Word of God. One is called the Logos, L-O-G-O-S. And then there's a word called Rhema, R-H-E-M-A. Now, they both are translated the Word of God. Now, the Word of God, Logos, is, is oh, not only does it have reference to the written Word of God, but also to oh, the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Rhema. So here we see John tells us that the entire, his entire book focuses on the realization of the deity of Christ and Jesus Christ being the Word of God. So the Word of God, the written Word of God, and the living Word of God are not the same, but they are inseparable. Did you get that? I, one got it, I think. The Word of God, the written Word of God, and the living Word of God, Jesus Christ, are not the same, but they are inseparable. The written Word of God, God brought to us over a period of some over 1,500 years. The first five books of the Bible, written somewhere in the, in the 1400s B.C., the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, written for somewhere around 100 A.D., 90 to 100 A.D. So somewhere between 15 and 1,600 years with over 40 different human authors. Each book shows the, shows the um, character of each one of the authors. It shows their vocabulary skills. It shows their educational level. Like the book of Amos. Powerful, powerful prophetic book. But Amos was, I love that passage in Amos where he says, oh, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I was just a husbandman, or he was, a, he was in agriculture. He, was a, he says, I was a sycamore fruit gatherer. Minding my own business, gathering my sycamore fruit. And God called me to preach. And then you look at the book of Hebrews, written in almost classical Greek. Compound, complex sentences. Vocabulary words that are used in the book of Hebrews that are not used anywhere else in Scripture. And then you look at all the Pauline epistles. They were written in what was known as Koine Greek. Koine means common. The Greek language was the common language of the world. It's amazing how God did all that, isn't it? You remember Alexander the Great? What was his nationality? He was Greek. Conquered the whole world. Spread the Greek culture all over the whole world. And at the age of 34, sat in a, droopin, a, a drunken stupor. Yeah, I think I've been there. A drunken stupor, depressed because he had no other worlds to conquer. 
conquered the whole world, spread the Greek language all over the whole world. And guess what the New Testament was written in? Greek. Why? Because then the whole world could read the Bible. All of that was not just by happenstance or accident. God used that heathen king, Alexander the Great, to prepare the world for the coming of the New Testament. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, God sent forth his Son. You see, both have come from God. The word, written word has come from God, so has his Son. Both live forever. Revelation 1, 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25 says, The word of the Lord endures forever. Both are unchanging. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Matthew 5 and verse 18, Till heaven and earth pass, what not one jot or tittle shall pass from my law. Both the Lord Jesus and the Bible are light in a dark place. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. The Bible says in Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Both are absolute truth. In John 14 verse 6, I am the truth, Jesus said. I'm not just a philosopher talking about the truth. I am the truth. You look in John chapter 17 and verse 17. Thy word is truth. So they are not the same, but they're inseparable. They are a revelation from God. Do you, do you see what's, what's here? I'm telling you that God calls the Bible the word of God. God calls his son the word of God. And the things that are true about Jesus are in many ways true about the Bible. Hebrews 4 and verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful. The, the word quick is the word, it's literally the word zoon. And it's the word we get our word zoology from. It means it's alive. And it's powerful. What else is unim unimpeachable? But what else is the word of God? It's unquestionable. It's unquestionable. Another way, way to say that is incorruptible, as the, as the verse says. Dr. R.G. Lee, former pastor, great pastor there at Bellevue Baptist many years ago, this is what he said about the Bible. All of its enemies have not torn one hole in its holy vesture or stolen one flower from its wonderful garden, nor diluted one drop of honey from its abundant hive, nor broken one string on its thousand-stringed harp, nor drowned one sweet word in infidel ink. The Word of God. Some have said, well, just doesn't, you know, as we mentioned earlier, doesn't science disprove the Bible? Just give science enough time. Maybe one day they'll catch up with the Bible. I want to tell you something. If a scientist says something good about the Bible, that doesn't give me any more faith in the Bible. Just a little more faith in the scientist. The Bible is the unquestionable, incorruptible word of God. Science will never, ever, ever disprove 
or in any way impeach or corrupt the Word of God. What's the third thing? It's the undeniable Word of God. 1 Peter 1 and verse 23, the Bible says of itself, it lives and abides for how long? Forever. Forever. It's undeniable. The Bible is not the book of the month. The Bible is the book of all ages. It is the best seller every year. It even outsells Greg Gutfeld. I see y'all don't watch Fox. It took over 1,500 years for the Bible to be written, spanning over 40 different human authors and 30 different generations. And the Bible was complete completed more than 2,000 years ago, but yet it is a fresh and living reality of today. And then next, the Bible is not only the undeniable, unquestionable Word of God and unimpeachable Word of God, but it is the unfailing Word of God. It is unfailing. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 25, Verse 25 tells us this, by the word of the Lord, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. It is unfailing. The word of God has been proclaimed now for over 2,000 years, and even before that with the Old Testament prophets. And it's still saving people today. The word of God is unfailing. There is nothing you will put your faith and hope in in this life that will endure forever. Your spouse is not going to be with you forever. Your children are not going to be with you forever. Your job and your security and your job and your finances and your retirement and your investments, they will not be with you forever. There's only two things that will last forever according to the Word of God. You know what they are? The Word of God and the souls of men. And that's what we ought to be investing in. It is unfailing. It is the only thing that can ever stand the test of time. If you don't know the Word... If you're not actively involved in studying the Word and devotionally reading the Word and living out the Word, then you're missing out on all that God has for you. How could, how could people go to church for 30 and 40 years and not know the Word of God? Well, it happens. It happens. Why is it that, that many folks will not step forward and serve and do the things that that the church needs to be able to reach more people for Christ because they don't want to take the time to sacrifice to study. So what does the Word of God provide for us that it's unfailing? Number one, it provides the church's message. We don't have any other message than what the Word of God gives us. If you go to the Joel Osteens of this world, go down there, he's going to give you a little happy face or or a little sticker to put on your shoulder, a little little warm fuzzy to put on your shoulder. He's going to tickle your ears and tell you it's your best life yet. Name it and claim it. 
God expects you to have everything. All you got to do is ask for it. Trust him. Ask for it. And the problem is there's, there's a little bit of truth mixed with all of that error that men like him preach. He draws crowds of 25 and 30 and 40,000 people every week telling them how, how blessed they are and how good they are. But you know one word he'll never mention? Hell. How can you preach the Bible and not preach judgment? How can you, you see, Jesus, if you'll do a study for yourself, don't just take my word for it. Be like a Berean here this morning. Search the scriptures and see if what I'm telling you is the truth. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Why? Because he warned us. You say, well, I just don't believe in hell. Well, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist just because you don't believe in it. You think the whole world focuses around you? The word of God says it, that settles it. It provides the church's message. What is the message? The gospel. First Peter oh, chapter 1 and verse 25 says this, And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Now the gospel doesn't need to be rethought, it just needs to be retaught. And the message of the church is the gospel. You cannot and could not say anything better about, about me or any other preacher that I know of than to say that that guy preaches the gospel. He believes the word of God. But what else does it do? It prescribes the church's method. We have, it gives us our message. It also gives us our method. What's the method? The method is the proclamation of the gospel. And this is the word, 1 Peter 1, verse 25, by which the gospel is what? Preached to you. How shall they hear without a preacher? The gospel changes people's lives. Did you know that in many churches, preaching is, is kind of gone, it, it's, it's just not, it's kind of out of vogue. It's more of a, you know, let me sit up here on my stool with my iPad and my little thing here and walk you through a little story. I wouldn't sit five minutes in a church like that. I want a man of God who will stand behind the pulpit of God and proclaim the word of God and would say to a lost and dying world that you need to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He came from heaven to earth. He came and died for you in a vicarious substitutionary death. That is, he was the truth who came and gave his life as a substitute for you because you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and you were headed to a, to a godless hell and to a place where you would be separated from God forever and forever, and the payment and judgment judgment of your sin would be upon you but thank God Jesus came and he took our judgment and he paid the price for our sin and the Bible says if we will trust him he will give us the gift of eternal life that's what I want to hear from the pulpits of God I don't want to hear some sweet little story that might be a good illustration, but I want to see, hear what the Word of God says. I want the man of God to take the Word of God and open the Word of God and, and preach and teach what the Word of God says. 
It prescribes the, church, prescribes the church's method. You know, but the thing called preaching that we do on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and others, I think is, um, this is what, a quote that I just read this week. He says, that thing called preaching that we do on Sunday morning, I think it is finished. I think that people will gather at the temple, let's say about every other week or once a month, and on Easter and Christmas. This coming to the church every Sunday to hear the proclamation of the word of God is outdated. We can, we can worship God out on the lake. Well, you can, but if you're neglecting the word, if you're neglecting the house of God, you're sinning. Uh-oh. I can worship God out on the ball field. You sure can. But if you're neglecting the house of God, you're sinning. Well, I can worship the God at my work. You can. And we live in a 24-hour society, seven-day-a-week society. But if you're neglecting the Word of God and neglecting the proclamation of the Word of God and you're using that as an excuse, you can use, you can use a virus as an excuse to neglect the Word of God and neglect the house of God. And I want to tell you something, folks. You're in trouble. We're like sheep being led to the slaughter. The system is being set in place where the truth of the word of God is being denied over and over. And the church is backing away from, from who they are as the church and proclaiming to a world that neither life, nor death, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing can separate us from the, from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But we let everything in the world separate us from the house of God. It's the church's message. It's the church's method. It's also provides the church members with what they need to live life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. The New Testament church must have a regenerated membership. And the problem is, is as uh, Billy Graham once said, that he believed the greatest mission field set inside the churches on the pews every Sunday morning Billy Graham said that he believed that somewhere between 70 and 80% of those who sit in churches every Sunday are lost. Have you ever, ever come to the point to where you surrendered your life to Christ and you trust him? You go about your everyday business every day. You go to work. You go to, you go to play. You go do this. You go do that. But when it comes to the house of God, you say, oh, my toe hurts this morning. I got to stay home. And honey, you got to stay home with me and bring me a warm cloth. Or one of the children will be sick. Oh, the whole family can't go to church today because why? Well, one of us is sick. Well, listen, if you are sick, stay home. Bless God, we don't want you infecting everybody else. 
But I want to tell you something, folks. We have become a, in our world today that sees the Word of God and the proclamation of the Word of God and the church of God. We no longer see it as an authority in our life. We see it as a convenience that we do when we don't have something else that we want to do better. And if we're going to be the people of God that we're supposed to be and God has called us to be, we have got to come to this idea to repent of our sin and repent of the fact that, that we have neglected the house of God. We've neglected the word of God. We'd rather sit in our couches and on our, on our easy chairs on Sunday nights instead of coming to study the word of God. We couldn't, we couldn't witness for the Lord if, we, if our life depended on it because we don't know the word of God. It is not the authority in our lives. We need a regenerated membership that is willing to get down and get dirty and do what needs to be done to get the word of God proclaimed. You and I, in our generation, have been given the opportunity to take the greatest thing, the greatest joy, the greatest gift, the greatest opportunity called the word of God and the proclamation of the gospel, and we neglect it. Billy Graham had a friend he and and Billy Graham were the in their young years Charles Templeton was his name he was the same in Canada that Billy Graham has been in the United States but Charles Templeton I have the book in my library. The title of his book is Farewell to God. You see, he, he decided to turn his back and walk away. And Billy Graham and Charles Templeton had been friends for years. And Billy Graham said to Charles, because Charles Templeton was trying to get him to go to Europe to go to Oxford University there with him. And Billy Graham at the time was serving as president of Wheaton College. And he said to him, Billy said to Charles Templeton, Charles, there are a lot of doubts. And there are a lot of things. And they were at a very critical time. This was back in the 50s. A very critical time in which there was a lot of liberalism and attacks on the word of God that was coming. Well, Charles Templeton fell to it. And Billy Graham just simply made this statement to his friend Charles. I have come to the point in my life where I know I have many questions about the veracity and the truth. He says, but I've accepted this one thing, that the Bible is God's word. And I'm going to focus my life on following the Bible and proclaiming its truth. And you see the impact Billy Graham made. And none of you probably had ever heard of Charles Templeton. He made no impact at all. 
In fact, he has turned so many people away from the word of God. Billy Graham said, when I surrendered my will, I got it settled. He says, the problem with us today is in our will. We don't have intellectual problems. Or you don't have an intellectual problem if you don't believe the Bible. You have a moral problem, he says. Your problem comes not out of your head, but out of your heart. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. He goes on to say the Bible, the word of God, inculcates faith in your heart. And if you want to know, you can know. And your heart will respond to the word of God like your eye responds to light. And your ear responds to sound. Your heart responds to the word of God when you're ready to hear the word of God. I just want to ask you this simple question today. Have you been born again by the word of God, which is not corruptible, but incorruptible? It is the seed. It's through the word of God that lasts forever. Or are you just following the pattern of maybe your family or others in the church and you, you just, you want to live a good life, which is honorable. You want to be a good person, which is honorable. But it's not salvation. I want to be a member of a church that's honorable. But have you been born again by the word of God, by the spirit of God, you say, well, how do I know the difference, whether I'm just playing church? Well, I want you to know that too many have been playing church, and the devil is playing for keeps. There'll be many who will say, Jesus said, there'll be many who will say, Lord, Lord, haven't I done all these mighty works in your name? Haven't I, haven't I, haven't I been a good person, Lord? Haven't I really invested and, and, and really been a good dad or a good mom or a good, good grandmother or a good grandfather? I've really, Lord, I've volunteered in, in all the things in the community. I really, I've helped people. Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. God's word means it when it says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. You say, well, what's the difference, Pastor? You have to come and be broken and repent. And repent means to turn from your own ways and to turn and surrender everything that you have and everything that you are to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And you have to come to this point to where you just simply... Not say it so much in these words, but you say it like Billy Graham said it. I'm going to just believe what the Word of God says. And so today, if you've never trusted Christ, I'm going to close us in a prayer. And I want you to make this prayer yours. And to know and understand that it's not about being a good person. 
In fact, there will not be one good person in heaven. And hell will be full of good people. You said, wow, Brother Ken, what does that mean? You know the only people that will be in heaven? Saved people. And saved means that you are trusting him. Only trust him. Only trust him. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You must come broken and empty and surrender it all to him. And the Holy Spirit of God working and moving, convicting of our sin, reproving us of our sin, will regenerate our dead spirit to life. That's the work of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's the only way that we can be saved. So make this prayer your own if you've never trusted Christ. Lord, thank you for your Word that is more sure it is unimpeachable, it is unquestionable, it is undeniable. There's nothing about it that can be corrupted. And so today, Lord, I trust you and I trust your word because that's how you've revealed yourself to us in the word, written word and in the living word, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, today I open my heart, my life, I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus Christ and I bow to him as Lord over my life. And that means that he is Lord over my time. He's Lord over my talents, my treasure. He's Lord over everything. And I surrender it all to him. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. And so, Lord, today I pray right now throughout our congregation and for those maybe listening uh, by live stream that they know and understand the truth and that the Word of God is the authority for our lives. Not how we feel, not what the culture says or anything else, but what does the Word of God say? It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living and powerful. It's full of life. Lord, it's incorruptible. And so we praise you today. Thank you for the fact that you will save us if we come in repentance and faith because you promise whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when we are saved, we surrender. And that means we surrender it all. Or we don't, we don't surrender any. It's either all or nothing. There's nothing partial to surrender to you. So, Lord, we give it to you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons. If you want to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org.